0: Love the control. Love the command. Love the space bar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM.
1: Inquiry into climate change. We
2: come from fire, we come from snow.
1: Episode 4 Fire. When Homo sapiens emerged in the last glacial period 300,000 years ago, fire helped our species stay alive. It plays a starring role in the Great Acceleration and the Anthropocene, both terms used to describe the period since the mid-20th century when we've seen a dramatic surge in population growth, industrial production and consumption and a massive rise in technologies. Human actions and choices are shaping the planet as never before, not always for the better.
3: Speaking from Massachusetts, it's 10 a.m. We have evidence of smoke from the fires all the way across the continent, in British Columbia, in the American West.
1: The most alarming consequence is global warming.
3: We have a red moon in the evenings and feeling of, in spite of the sun, of a slight filter over the sun. And it's astonishing to think that I'm on an island off the east coast of the United States and that those fires, which have been burning for a long time now, are just simply moving across the globe. Earth's temperatures have
1: always fluctuated, but since the Industrial Revolution, the planet has seen a steady rise, and especially in recent decades. Since 2001, we've had 19 of the 20 warmest years on record.
4: We live in a valley in what they call the Western Australian Wheatbelt, We suffer horrendous droughts here and severe fire seasons, which have got longer and longer as climate has changed. When 97% of the vegetation has gone of a massive region like this, the environmental catastrophe has already happened. But there are many people trying their hardest to restore it. Poets Jory
1: Graham and John Kinsella check in with weather reports from very different parts of the globe, each with the unavoidable sense of a world on fire. Closer to home, Welsh language poet Mena Elvin tells me about the legacy of coal mining in Wales.
3: There was a mining disaster in 2011, the Glacian Colliery, when four men died underground and there was so much concern whether they'd come out alive, many dead, but four died. I just could not get my grandfather out of the scenario and then I just remembered the faces of my mother whenever there was a disaster especially a mining disaster then she would turn away and there'd be tears in her eyes because she remembered that day my grandfather he was the only one the tram came down on on top of him and um, he died instantly I think and the way all the women would come out knowing if the foreman and the manager are walking up the street, something's happened. And they were all fearful, of course, would it be their gate? So the gate is a kind of symbol, but it also represents how we do live, hoping that that gate won't be opened, but it's shut and kept shut. Y Gloid. Wedi'r Dyrechuneb ynglofa Gleisio'n again. The Gate, after the Glacian Colliery Tragedy 2011. Sometimes a day like a lightning bolt will remind us that there's only a breeze under the door between us and death. Yesterday, men died underground, and I remembered my mother's sparing words. 1947, pit manager and foreman walking slow down the village street towards her home. The women watching either side of the street to see which house was their journey's end. But as she heard the gate close, my grandmother knew the dark message that came with a knock on the door. Today I think of them both, my mother, my grandmother, grandmother, better understand how they'd switch off any mention of underground disasters the minute they started. Deledi, am dhamwain, dam, they remembered the closing of the gates. And, and this afternoon yma, there's news from a friend in Mumbai who tells me of an am earthquake, am earthquake in Sikkim, how her parents Do heard this murmur in Kolkata. in Kolkata, near and far gates are opening, closing, the end of their world for some, and the world coming closer, drawing us to it. And every ghost of a rumour, good or bad, murmurs that we live through boats, some which close, some which wound. At the end of the day, the we gaze for a long time at the still, still gate here are the given the blessing for peace for today and'm for today I'm heathew. we were given peace
1: one of my grandfathers who I never met was also what was called on his marriage certificate, a hewer, (laughs) a a coal miner in in the Northeast. And so that's something that we share from Wales and the, the Northeast of England, that long tradition of coal mining. And it's such an important part of the culture and the identity And traditionally such a source of pride, the coal was a treasure, it gave heat and it was the source of income in the family. But then latterly, it's been discovered that it's problematic in terms of the effects on the environment, the challenge to the earth.
3: And and that was the dilemma, really, with a miners' strike. We did campaign or we did do things, collect food for the miners and so forth. And I even went on a picket line, which I hated and I regretted going because there were men who were on strike, but there were men coming on a bus going to work. And you could feel empathy for both sides and knowing that it was a dirty business being a coal miner. And yet there was nothing to replace it. And it meant We were fighting for communities, sustainability of communities. And and the scars of that are still apparent today. And I think people recognise that it wasn't a sustainable way of living, apart from the other kind of sustainability, that it was exploitation, basically, and that it made the wealthy wealthier and, and the poorer poorer. But what was lost was the sense of community. And that sense of coming together.
1: There's a long tradition of poets, like folk singers, speaking out about injustice and calling for change. For John Kinsella in Western Australia, there's no division between his work as poet and his work as protester.
4: We forget our communities, we forget our purpose. And one of the interesting things about dealing with any protest situation is that you have to understand the very people you're protesting against. Often decisions are made far from them. They are working. They see it as work. They see it as doing their job to feed their families. They see it as their way of rising out of wherever they are, quotation marks around rising. They see themselves as sustaining what they have. And if you don't try and understand the psychology of those you're protesting against, you can almost become so insensitive that you undo your own actions through that insensitivity. The end result we desire is to stop the damage. It's not to affect negatively other people. It's to show other people that other ways are possible. And poetry does that. Poetry, you can make an example that people can look at and come to their own version of. They can make it part of themselves or they can reject it. And I do think that the communal or social part of these things is highly essential.
1: Environmental activist and artist Suzanne Dalliwell also takes a holistic view to call out the root cause of exploitation and ecological devastation.
5: Well, if we think about the climate crisis and when it started, it started in 1492. It started when the settler colonial imagination decided to Destroy land, to steal land, to destroy communities. Sometimes in Britain, we're like, oh, we don't really understand this, or there's this selective amnesia about history. But most British people know that the wealth that has been amassed by the UK and its corporations and governments has been taken by theft. It's about connecting the dots, and they make us have to look at deep things like settler colonialism, racism really violent situations.
4: Colonialism is pretty well at the root of all evils in its various versions through history, and it has its present versions too. There are many colonisations taking place in many different ways in the now. In Australia's case generally, but in Western Australia specifically, you're talking about any kind of settler culture that comes to a place to restructure their lives in the image of where they've left in many ways. What was here was land, covered by bush that belonged to other people. So, you know, it was pushing those people aside, in many cases murdering those people, and taking it, clearing it, and farming it. And, you know, European farming methods just didn't work here. The land is different. We have phenomenally hot summers getting hotter and hotter. The soil is often quite marginal in most of the wheat belt. Traditional uh, Aboriginal methods of fire stick farming and so on that had gone on for millennia worked here. But the colonial push, supposedly sustainable, supposedly increasing the the bounty, was actually diminishing it all the time.
5: Those land struggles, those colonial relationships, are all at the heart of why land grabs happen, why companies can displace communities, get away with it, profit from it, and that's seen as legal with the Tar Sands in Canada, the Indigenous community signed treaties with the Crown in Britain. And those treaties were signed to protect their land, to protect those rights. And it's those rights that were violated by the Crown, by the Canadian government against Indigenous communities that allowed for the extraction to happen, which is now leading to the Tar Sands, which is leading to the climate crisis. What the Canadian Tar Sands looks like is removing the forest, which is one of the most important carbon sinks in the planet, second to the Amazon. The industry calls that overburden. Using natural gas, they mix really hot water with the soil to separate the bitumen. And then it needs to be refined multiple times with a chemical process. Those chemicals are then released into these open toxic tailing ponds, which are not regulated, they're not lined. So you can imagine, just a a quick stat, it's three to five times more polluting than regular oil. It uses large amounts of hot water and natural gas to make this dirty oil.
1: Canadian academic Deborah McGregor is Anishinaabe and Whitefish River First Nation. She reflects on what Indigenous climate studies can bring to the conversation.
6: I think Indigenous criticism, when it's coming from a different worldview and knowledge base, is helpful because it helps people kind of poke the holes a little bit. And hopefully what that does is push it a little bit further, right? Like push the conversation a little bit further than what I call tweaking the status quo, like electric cars. Where do you think that electricity comes from and who's paying the price for the generation of that? in Ontario? A lot of it's generated from nuclear. And guess where they want to bury the high-level nuclear waste? In Indigenous territories. Like, how can you imagine what it's like to live in the world without having all this stuff? Well, I think Indigenous peoples have been have been doing it so they can show that. People are never comfortable with the criticisms, but I think that's what Indigenous peoples can offer. That would support things like language. People don't necessarily relate language revitalization to any kind of climate action. So a lot of it has to do with, like, understanding what those relationships are like.
3: Mena Elvin. People tend to think, oh, Welsh is a minority language, but it gives you a worldview that is as rich as any other. Cairnevin is a Welsh word. It's a place that is deemed to be special. It is a better word, really, than the environment, because it connects everything from... Plants, to people, to the land. Writing in Welsh, which is still an endangered language, gives me another sense of purpose to make sure that it isn't only about Wales and that it connects with other communities, languages, countries. They are all connected, and I think we face the same challenges and the same possible human disasters which is a kind of wake-up call that we have to do something drastic about what's happening in the environment.
1: Whether in protest or in praise, poetry and song are able to hold the tension between diversity and unity, keeping faith in a vision of basic goodness, the possibility of harmony. After anti-fracking protests in Lancashire, Northumbrian folk duo the Brothers Gillespie were moved to write this, Tina's Song, about the leader of the Nanas, a campaigning group of concerned grandmothers.
2: Now they're plotting to send our grandmother to jail If the fine handed down by the courts isn't paid 55,000's the sum they demand For defending us all and for taking a stand Now the oil will be gone in a few more short years But the powers that be need bogus frontiers So the frackers have come to blast open the ground And crack the earth's bones to make dollars and pounds it wanted to celebrate and empower as much as possible, you know, th- those people resisting fracking in their community at the same time as challenging power and calling it out as much as a song can do, you know. There's only so much that you can do as a singer, but there is a time and a place for bringing your voice and your words. Oh, is this what we are? Oh When we hear the word protest, we think that means you're putting yourself against something. But I think the literal meaning of it is you're testifying for something. When we protest, then, we're, we're speaking for what is beautiful and what is healthy. And I think, in a way, that's a way of potentially disarming some of that kind of oppositional stuff that can come in. Folks didn't want it, no we was lent. Democracy is for the top 1% you look to the law you'll find that it's bent the deal is wrapped up there's no need for consent and they call it free market to get us on side cause we all like freedom but folks it's a lie it's a psychotic system quite coolly devised to steal your birthright from under your eyes Even a protest song that is trying to get its head around a lot of the darkness that's happening in our world, at the end of the day it's still a song, you know, it's still trying to articulate some kind of belief in some sort of possibility some kind of dream of a possible world that might be in some way better. Oh, I'm just a bard, there's not much I can do But I'll write a song and I'll try to sing true For we are your grandsons and granddaughters too We'll be there by your side when the law comes for you And all you good people now take my advice don't let these frackers come ruin our lives Our mother is peace and loving and wise Let's stand up beside her and open our eyes
1: The Brothers Gillespie, ending our fire episode In Our Element was presented by me, Linda France It's a Sonderbug production with New Writing North in association with Newcastle University and is supported by the Audio Content Fund and Arts Council England. Thank you for listening.
0: Love the nouns. Love the pronouns. Impersonal. And personal. Love the Words, from ELFM.
7: So, you're listening to Love the Words, here on East Leeds FM, and I'm in Studio One, with the actor and the writer, Vanessa Rosenthal. Hello, Vanessa. Hello. It's not the first time you've been here, is it?
0: Uh, No, it's not. I was here a few years ago when we did, uh, out of Leeds Playhouse, we did Alan Bennett's Talking Heads, and we took the monologues out into the community and I was in the room upstairs doing um, a Lady of Letters.
7: I remember. I think I saw it in Kentmere Community Centre. I
0: think, yes, because we went there too, yes.
7: Lovely to have you. You're back. And how, how do you like it? You haven't been to the chapel since our renovation. Oh,
0: I think it's absolutely fabulous. I think what you've done, I mean, I've only just had a glance at it, but I think it looks absolutely amazing. Um, and well done.
7: Oh, well, thanks very much indeed. Well, we and well done to you because we've we're, you've got a book out and we're yes. and we're going to be talking about that today. Yes. It's, it's called Inside Out: A Life in Stages. So it's uh, and it's published by Red Door Press, and it's a very beautiful looking object. Thank um, you. Which and and yeah, so it's a it's a memoir.
0: It is a memoir. Ah, uh, it's a memoir uh, with a purpose, I suppose. Overall, I'd say. It's a search for a fixed identity, uh, out of my background, along with a lot of funny stories about my life as an actor, uh, bringing up a family in Leeds. Uh well, I, I can't even tell you how long ago it was, it is that I first came to Leeds. So that is a sort of overall arc of it.
7: Mm. It does sound I mean it, it it from from what I've read about the book and what you how, and what you've said about it it yes. does seem to be about identity who you are yes um, and so tell us tell us a bit about that
0: indeed well um I come from a mixed marriage you would you would characterize it as my father was an ashkenazi jew which means orthodox judaism he was the uh first generation born in this country to uh Russian Jewish parents. It was Russia then, but it's now in, within the it's now in Poland in fact in a place called Bialystok. and my mother was through and through English from a rural farming background. They were married in nineteen thirty eight And she converted to Judaism at that point. It was a very unusual thing to do in 1938. Nowadays, I think it's much more common um, and much more accepted. My father's family did not accept it. They were Orthodox Jews, and they did what is called, sounds very savage to us, called they sat shiva, which means uh, a week of mourning for the dead. So the blinds were pulled down, and they sat for a week and mourned my father as if he was dead. Um, and I think this effect on my mother, who became far more uh, observant than my father, who just would have been, oh, it doesn't matter. I mean, what does this? Uh, I think it affected her personality in some ways. I was brought up Jewish. I. Saw myself and do see myself as proud to say I'm Jewish, but always with this kind of caveat in my head. Mm. Am I really? Am I really enough? Am I really acceptable?
7: Wow, that's a very big question. Mm. Um, I think to some extent... <laughs> we, we all carry that question. I
0: think we all do, actually. <laughs> once you start but, but, looking at it. Yeah.
7: But for you and that story of your parents, that's a, that's a, that's an immensely powerful.
0: Immensely powerful. Image. Um. Yeah. And for my mother too. Yeah. And it was interesting that I think it, one of the scars it left was she was always worrying that she got it right, whatever right means. Yeah. Uh, in her case it meant keeping uh a kosher kitchen until she she dropped mm. it completely. Mm. My father couldn't have given two stuffs about that. Mm. Um, How did they meet? That's very interesting. My mm. mother was uh came from it was a farms outside Rochdale, Bury, Lancashire. Am I allowed in here? <laughs> <laughs> you are, you are. <laughs> Am I allowed in here? <laughs> um and she was training to be, oh, it's a ridiculous word nowadays, she was training to be what is called an elocution teacher mm. at the Northern College of Music in Manchester and had a Saturday job in a posh hairdressers. Mm. And there she met my f- father's sister, mm. who uh, thought, became friendly with her, liked her a lot, and took her home for tea. And that's how it all began. Wow.
7: So that's 1938, yes, to convert to Judaism at a time when, well, we know what was happening in 1938 in Europe.
0: Absolutely. A number of people have said that to me. Um, And it was a years-long process. It's not a quick-fix thing. Mm. Uh, You have to satisfy a a panel of rabbis that you are fully uh, knowledgeable now to declare yourself uh, a Jew, mm. which of course she went through. Yeah. Um extraordinary. Mm. And
7: you say that um I mean before we get on to you, we were, yes. we, you know, we're doing that Tristram Shandy thing of stuff stuff. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> Let only be two two years old at the end of the book. But, uh, yes. Yeah. But um you know it, it you say that she eventually dropped the Judaism Judaism. No, she so. didn't
0: drop Judaism at all. She mm. dropped those kind of uh practices that one really associates with uh, uh, extreme, well, to me, extreme observance, though there would be plenty of people within liberal Judaism, of which I'm a member, we're not talking orthodox Judaism here, who would say there are certain foods I don't eat, but I certainly uh, don't seek out a kosher butcher in Leeds, and uh, I, I don't do this and I don't do the other. Um, mm. She she dropped that, yes. but she remained very much a committed member of the synagogue community.
7: Fascinating. Well, I mean, I, I've asked you to 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 identify a couple of passages from the book, and yes. uh, it'd be lovely just to hear a flavour of the book, if that's all right.
0: Indeed, um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a little because um, I haven't done my homework, so I get slapped hands. <laughs> I've done my homework about some funny stories from the theatre. Mm. I think, in a way. I probably am better at this point than uh, snuffling pages in front of you than just explaining a little. Okay, that would be great. Yes, absolutely. So one of the things that had gone towards the writing of the memoir was around uh, post-millennium, I had decided I wanted to go and find my grandfather's birth city Mm. in northeast Poland, as it is now, in a place called... Uh, Bialystok, which of course we've all heard of now with Max Mm. Bialystok and all the rest of it. Um, uh, And getting there from Warsaw was not an easy thing because it's fine if you're going to Warsaw or Krakow, but once you get on a train going out east, all the uh, station names are in Cyrillic alphabet. Mm -hmm. You don't know where you're going. And my late husband was with me, and uh, miles and miles of silver birch woods that you pass. And we came to Bialystok, I could give you the figure, I could look that up. Uh, I think with uh, Jewish refugees uh, fleeing east, thinking that they were safer, the the general uh, population in Bialystok then was about uh, 39,000 people. It made up over one third of the population of the city, working mainly in the textile mills. Mills, sorry, and um. Uh, nowadays, nowadays there are eleven Jews living in Bialystok. They weren't all uh, murdered in the Holocaust, uh, but uh, there've been uh, emigrations. There have been a push in the 60s and a lot of them left for Israel, but there are only 11 now. And uh, we, I had engaged a, a guide who took me around all the places, uh, the, the Jewish sites, and it was a very memorable experience. Mm. Uh, one of the things that I'd done by then uh, was to, in the public Record uh, records office, I'd found my grandfather's naturalization certificate and I found it very moving Mm. he said I swear that I am a subject of Russia and that I was born in the province of Grodno of Jacob and Leah Rosenthal uh, and it was his application to Mm. become a British citizen and I'm sure that story is repeated over and over again in different ways in Leeds with different people arriving here. Mm. Uh, So it's not, in that sense, a special story, but it was to me.
7: Absolutely. And did you, in terms of the book, was that where you started to think about writing about this?
0: I came back and I wrote a play for Radio Mm. 4 called Exchanges in Bialystok. And... uh, uh, it was soaked in that in that journey in that experience, and a little later than that, and this is a little anecdote, and I will read you this passage, because uh, it is a close connection, and I find this very moving. My father had often talked of a relative of ours, called Herschel Rosenthal, who had perished in the Bialystok Ghetto Uprising, which I didn't know about. I only knew about the Warsaw, Warsaw one um, and that he was a very brave young man and that he was a student at Warsaw when he perished. And I started looking on the Internet
8: mm.
0: and it's extraordinary in your own home to suddenly find this information. There was his name. Is his name now? And also cross-reference to the Jewish Encyclopedia, because of his, well, I suppose really because of of this speech that he gave on the eve of the liquidation of the ghetto, of his bravery, he was one of the partisans living out in the forest by then, and when it was obvious that they were going to stood, stand no chance, the the Germans were marching into the ghetto, to do the final liquidation, and I'll read uh, what I found. i had come in search of one of them, specifically called Herschel Rosenthal. My father had spoken of him a few times as a relative. How he knew about him, I never asked when I could have done. A familiar story to many people. Nor did I know which branch of the family he was descended from. On the subject of the Holocaust, my father's feelings were too deeply felt to allow much conversation. I believe he felt a general, a generic survivor's guilt. So altogether, I had very little to go on in tracing Herschel Rosenthal. All I knew was that at the time of the German occupation, he was a young student at Warsaw University, who later played some brave part in the Bialystok ghetto uprising. Until I started looking prior to this visit, I'd been ignorant of the fact that the Bialystok ghetto uprising was second in importance only to the Warsaw ghetto uprising. As As I started searching, I was astonished to see Herschel Rosenthal's name come up several times, including one reference to the Jewish Encyclopedia. It was from this source I learned that Herschel was a prominent activist in Draw, a Zionist youth group who had fled to the forests with other partisans as soon as the German occupation began. When word reached him in August 1943 of the Nazi intention to to liquidate those that remained in the ghetto, he came back from the forest to join in a general discussion about what to do. Ephraim Barash, the ghetto leader, argued for compliance with the Nazi edicts as a way of saving as many lives as possible. But Herschel Rosenthal, along with Mordecai Tenenbaum, a fellow Zionist, argued, argued for armed resistance. The impassioned case Herschel put forward somehow survived. And here was I reading his speech on my computer in the comfort of my living room in Leeds some 60 years later. And I start quoting the speech. Here in Bialystok we are fated to live out the last act of this blood-stained tragedy. What can we do and what should we do? The way I see it, the situation really is that the great majority in the ghetto and of our group are sentenced to die. Our fate is sealed. We have never looked on the forest as a place in which to hide. We have looked on it as a base for battle and vengeance. But the tens of young people who are going into the forest now Do not seek a battlefield there. Most of them will lead beggars' lives there and most likely will find a beggar's death. In our present situation, our fate will be the same, beggars all. There is only one thing left for us, therefore, and it is organising a collective act of resistance in the ghetto at any cost. To consider the ghetto to be our Musa Dag, a mountain in Turkey, this was, and the scene of a successful resistance in the Armenian genocide, and to add a chapter of honor to Jewish Alistock and our movement.
7: Oh, that's extraordinary, Vanessa. Yeah.
0: Wow. And of course, he perished. of, I mean, of course. Yeah.
7: Well, and what an extraordinary piece of family history mm, to,
0: it, it, it was, to discover. It was. To discover. Yeah. And not to have known it until then, you
7: know. Oh, absolutely. Well, to get to. That's something of your <coughs> your background and also it ties in very closely with what you're saying about you know your acceptability as yes. being from a mixed marriage
2: yes.
7: um but in terms of your 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 writing and your acting was that something that your parents were were fine with with did they give their blessing to that journey yeah,
0: yes i think with with a few provisos my father's argument was you'll never make any money, you'll never live, you'll starve in a garret, uh, what will you do? So there was an insistence that I also, when I went to Central School of Speech and Drama in London, that I also had a teaching qualification. As my father would say, you always got something to fall back on. Mm. Um, uh, So it it was mixed, but I I had always been taken to the theatre. Obviously, there's a connection between the kind of... Career my mother had as a voice teacher, Mm. words, literature, theatre, poetry. Mm. So it wasn't that extraordinary, Um, Mm. but I don't think they were. I don't think they were terribly happy about it.
7: (laughs) And what? And yeah, did did coming was coming to Leeds? Did that precede your going into theatre? Oh yes,
0: yes, yes. As I said, I, I've strayed in. I'm a Lancastrian. Ah, oh, um, oh, yes. yes. But um,
7: how, did you end, uh, how did you end up here?
0: How did I end up <laughs> here? that's right. I, I came to uh, Leeds with my late husband in the 70s when he was, first of all, appointed deputy registrar of the university and later he became registrar of the university. Um, I didn't know Yorkshire at all, really. Mm-hmm. And I remember overhearing what to me then, probably as old as I am now, uh, a very uh, sort of uh, upper-class lady at a dinner at the university, and she had one of those awful voices that sort of screech, and and she was saying, I can't stand Leeds, it's an awful, awful place, but what I do like about it is you can get out so easily into glorious North Yorkshire. And I thought, where have I come? Mm. Um, And Leeds in the 70s was not Leeds as it is now. This glossy, vibrant city with so many opportunities. And I thought after Manchester, I thought this is a one-horse town I've come to. Now, I don't like Manchester at all, and I absolutely think Leeds is a splendid city to live in.
7: Absolutely, and as a newcomer myself, I've only been here 30 years. Oh,
0: that's, uh, bit, that's <laughs> new by my standards.
7: <laughs> I, I would totally applaud, and uh, yes. yeah, I, I agree entirely. Yes. So, uh, Vanessa, tell us a little about the kind of range of, 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 but uh, yeah, writing, particularly that you've writing.
0: done. Well, I suppose, Peter, that's that's odd because it all ties up with the theme of this book. I think I wasn't. I was writing, I've always written, and I, I'd, I'd written a novel that had uh, uh, really come done very well in the 80s. It was the runner-up for a prestigious prize for n- new novelists. But I think there was a, a not-quite-honesty about my writing that was not really embracing or taking on board this ambiguity I felt about myself. And so it wasn't really until, and then I became, what my story is going on to say is I became very much a a writer for the theatre, but primarily a broadcast writer. It was after my mother's death in the early 90s, and I felt freed to be able to talk about a dual heritage, Hmm. which is what I've got, really. Because for every bit I can talk to you about Russia and about Eastern Europe, I could talk to you about the very different values from city values, from people who have farmed for generation after generation and upheld the Church of England, come what may, Mm. um, Mm. from the very beginning. So when uh, I started writing, I was working at the BBC as an actor Mm. and... uh, in the green room, a fellow actor said something about this novel of mine that had done so well. And Nandita Ghosh sailed past and said, I didn't know you wrote. And I said, oh, yes, yes, but I don't write plays. <laughs> like, heaven, heaven forbid. And she said, oh, don't be so silly. You're an actor. Go away and write me a play. And so I did, and the first play was about my parents' mixed marriage. And then it was as if I was being honest in my writing. And it happened after that, really. Mm. I'd say that it took off.
7: That's really interesting. And it, 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 I mean, it gives you <clears throat> two seats of power, really, doesn't mm. it? As a writer, yes. to have two such yes. V- yes. different uh, sort yes. of polarities yes. there, yes. Yes. Um, uh, rather than it being a sort of compromise between yes. two. Like, I think what, it
0: was it, before, you know. Wouldn't that, yeah,
7: was. but actually, mm. to explore those as two, mm. two very sort of detailed worlds, I yes. suppose. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Fascinating. So, so, so you've written a lot for Radio 4?
0: A lot for Radio 4. Uh, I've written for the theatre. Um, I've done shows that I took to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. My golly, that's like a... Oh, it's like a, a bear garden now. Hmm. I think you have to be under 25 <laughs> and ready ready to start what they call Are You Going Out Tonight? They ring you at midnight. Uh, you know, some of these promoters who are promoting their, their mm. gigs and clubs and they bring you up and say, um, quarter to 12, and they say, are, are you up for going out tonight? And I think, I'm going home to the Oval Team. What are you talking about? <laughs> I've just done a show. <laughs> so, yes, I took some shows to Edinburgh. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and one-woman shows I have been writing. Mm, um, yes. A, a couple of years ago I had one. Yeah, I took out.
7: Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, you've you've done a great, uh, uh, a lot of work. I know, mm-hmm. you know, in in theatre and yes. and as as a you know as a one woman in yes. solo shows. Yeah, yeah. and and um, well, let's. I mean, it'd be lovely to hear another bit from the book that relates right. to your acting.
0: Well, I think I think you after all that seriousness, which I own and I, I'm proud of, but I think uh, a little funny story. So uh, when I left drama school. Um, in the 60s, it it was a very different profession in that most towns of any decent size had a rep, Mm. usually fortnightly. It was fortnightly by the time I started. And uh, your contract, if you were lucky enough to get one, was for 40 weeks. Will you tell young actors that now? Uh, And I admire them so much. They cannot believe your first job was for 40 weeks. <laughs> um, uh, and that was your provisional equity card, because, of course, it was a closed shop then. And at the end of 40 weeks, you would get a full equity card on which every other job depended. So uh, they were like gold, because every rep only took two. You were there as ASM actor, which meant ASM bit was dog's body, <laughs> going round the town very inexperienced, you learnt a lot, you played parts that you were right for, parts that you certainly weren't right for, and you had no experience really to cope when things went wrong. So this is the bit I'm going to read you. It was, and again, they will probably be... (coughs) um, So my first 40-week contract was um, at the Castle Theatre Farnham, in In Surrey, and uh, this is one of the things that went wrong fairly early on and it was during uh the run of an Agatha Christie audiences loved Agatha Christie, and not the fun I mean we did some serious stuff we did do our Shakespeare and we did Sheridan and we did uh Thornton Wilder but anyway this was this was agatha christie um And this time it was murder at the vicarage and I was playing another maid. I say another maid, I always seem to be playing maids, again called Mary. During the strike on the previous Saturday night, I was consigned to packing a tea chest with props from the last show. It was gone midnight and I was very tired after a matinee and an evening show. I rubbed my eyes and my contact lenses flew out. These were the hard sort of lenses, each the size of a small pea. I shouted out that everyone must come and help me go through the tea chest meticulously from the bottom up. But they were all tired too, and my request was met with a kind of hysterical laughter. They told me I could forget it. I'd never find them, needle in a haystack sort of thing, and if I... Thought, and if I thought everyone was going to stay on for another hour to look for them, i got another thing coming. No, no, I'd just have to do without them. All right for them, but without my lenses I was blind as a bat. I had no spares and no spectacles, all part of a kind of carelessness that was very much part of me then and probably to a lesser degree still is. I managed to cope with good good luck rather than any proper judgment at the dress rehearsal. My astigmatism, combined with my short sight, meant that seeing anything in the darkness backstage was a real challenge. On the first night, I saw the green cue light come on for my entrance and frantically tried to make out where the door was for me to get onto the stage. Oh, hurrah! I could see a light. I groped towards it, pushed hard at the stage flat in front of me and moved forward. With difficulty, it must be said, because the ground underneath me was uneven and the door seemed to have shrunk. Cynthia Grenville and Norman Jones, as the Reverend and Mrs Clement, gawped in astonishment over their breakfast table as I appeared bursting through the baronial fireplace. (laughs) For seconds, none of us spoke. I turned in shock and looked at the pieces of red and yellow stage gels I trampled through, carefully arranged to catch the stage lighting and suggest a live fire. My arrival was nothing short of a religious miracle. I trod burning coals to reach them. Would I
7: ever live it down? <laughs> Very good. Oh, wonderful stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a great, great theatre story. Great theatre yeah, story. Yeah. Vanessa, yeah, I was going to ask you uh, um, another question.
0: Yeah.
7: To round off, it's it, it's it's some. I mean, you've been you've done a lot of work with Script Yorkshire. Yes, in the I past. have. So, Script Yorkshire is an, an organisation that, for years, as beginning as Yorkshire playwrights, supported and has supported writers. In fact, we've been doing some work with Script Yorkshire Good. very recently, yes. recording some plays, short yes. plays of theirs and their competition. But yes, tell us a bit about that, and the kind of leads for you as a kind of community of writers, because I know you're very active within that
0: Yes, uh, less so than I was, uh, and that's, in a way, uh, um, because of its huge success, it has now really uh, become become a, a really big and important thing it's like like a lot of good ideas it started with three men and a dog in a pub Um, three
7: women (laughs) well it wasn't no actually it
0: wasn't three (laughs) three women there was Stuart Golland there was myself and uh I think I'm not sure if Ray Brown was was Mm -hmm. involved in the very beginning uh, maybe the three sort of trickled up to five or six, and we sat around in the old Leeds Playhouse up on the university campus, and we'd all of us said that we were privately or separately writing and that Leeds needed something like this, and we'd no idea how to go about it. <clears throat> we'd no idea really what we meant. We kept saying things like, you know, it, it would be good if we could all meet fairly regularly and talk about what we're trying to do with our writing. And bit by bit, more conversations, more talk, we approached Jude Kelly with the idea. And she was very open to it. She didn't at that point, I think, give us space or a room in the theatre. We were, were literally meeting in the back room of pubs and that continued for quite a time. And um, slowly it, it sort of... It, it gathered momentum mm. Um And it's hard to say at what point it really pushed over to become really this very professionalised thing which I so admire the work Mm. that the committee and the team do and the Mm. workshops that are now run and the the, the sort of in-house competitions um, and the spread of writing talent from people who are experienced and have had success and very, very generous and happy to spread that uh, and uh, be part of it. Uh, And the person who's just been writing for six months and needs a home is equally going to be made welcome. I think it's a fabulous thing, and and I'm very proud to have been in near the beginning.
7: As Yorkshire player playwrights as Yorkshire
0: uh, playwrights Yorkshire we playwrights and then, right. and
7: then <laughs> script Yorkshire as yes. exists now, and is open to anybody and listening mm. who who writes drama Absolutely. who writes script yeah. and would like to uh, like to yet yeah, to be involved with other writers with doing other stuff writers.
0: yeah and I think too, you know if you, if you come along and you feel you haven't a home, I would have said, and as I say, I'm not directly involved now that if you're a poet nobody's going to push you away they're not going to say oh look this is only people who are writing plays they're, they're going to say have you heard of so-and-so and do you know about so-and-so mm. uh, um they might say try one of our workshops you might find you you are a playwright and you didn't know it yeah um and i think that's great
7: well um Thank you very much, Vanessa, for talking about the But the book is called Inside Out: A Life in Stages, and yes. it's published by Red Door Press. So, is that if people Google Red Door Press, if they,
0: bo- if <laughs> they Google Red Door Press, Red Door have their own, I mean, virtual book bookshop. You can yeah. buy it from there. You can get it in Waterstones. You can get it obviously in Amazon. Uh, it's on. I'm sure I've said, that. you can get anywhere you can buy it. Um, yeah. So it, it's Red Door, Amazon, Waterstones.
7: Great. Well, thank you, Vanessa. It's been lovely to talk to you about the book. And uh, if you've got anything anything you're writing at the moment that you want to say something about?
0: I, I am writing some. I mean, you, you know, a writer, you just think, what am I doing now? Mm. So I, um, I'm writing a book about, I hope it's going to be, uh, about three very much uh, women who were outsiders in their own way and extraordinary lives. i uh, come in and talk mm. to you, if I may, Please a bit do. later about how it's going and who these women were.
7: And this is a novel?
0: No, it, well, it, it's non-fiction. Yeah. Uh, um, it, it's not a novel. It's so the a, women are... Uh, yeah, they existed. Oh, they did exist. exist. Uh, Great. Oh, that's A intriguing. couple of them really famous, mm-hmm. though I don't think they're, they're secret stories. Mm which stemmed really from my mother's secret life. Mm. Um, so these are women who had secrets. This is
7: very intriguing. Right, and you must come back and I talk do. about I'd it when you do. I'd love uh, to. And finally, before we go, uh, a piece of music that, that relates for you to the book or to your um, life or any of the things we've spoken about.
0: I, well, that's, uh, I, I think in a way, if we want to be upbeat, we ought to say what I've been talking about, Uh, a piece from Fiddler on the Roof. And then, uh, I'm being very obvious here, there's no business like show business. Mm
3: -hmm
7: -hmm. And any particular track from Fiddler on the Roof? Any particular song, I should Um, say?
0: No, I think it's got to be one sung by Teve, the the milkman, the, the main character.
7: Well that need that that will sadly require me to go back and have a look and listen to it but um. I know I, I love it i love the, I yes. love the musical yes. so yes. I'm big yeah. I'm, I'm you know it'll, no excuse to go Good. back and listen Good. to that
0: Good.
7: thank you Vanessa
8: thank you peter If I were a rich man all day long hey, if I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard. If I were a bitty, bitty rich, idle, little idle idle man, I'd build a big, tall house with the rooms by the dozen, right in the middle of the town. A in a roof with the real wooden floors below. There would be one long staircase just going up and one even longer coming down. And one more leading nowhere just for show. I'd fill my Yard with chicks and turkeys and geese and ducks For the town to see and hear Squawking just as noisily as they can And each love Will land like a trumpet on the ear As if to say Here lives a wealthy man If I were a rich man, yabidi bidi 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 dum. All day long, a biddy biddy bum. If I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard. Yabidi bidi 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 dum. If I were a bit biddy rich idle little idle idle man, I. I see my wife, my gold, uh, looking like a rich man's wife with a proper double chin. Supervising meals to her heart's delight. I see her putting on airs and strutting like a peacock. Oh, what a happy mooch is in. Screaming at the servants day and night. The most important man in town will come to fun on me. They will ask me to advise them, like a Solomon the wise. If you please, Rebetevier, pardon me, Rebetevier, posing problems that would cross a Rabbi's eyes. And it won't make one bit of difference if I answer right or wrong. When you're rich, they think you really know. If I were... Rich, i'd have the time that i like to sit in the synagogue and pray and maybe have a seat by the eastern wall and i discuss the holy books with the learned men seven hours every day and that would be the sweetest thing of all If I were a rich man, yeah, dibba long dibba 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 be di be di be di be di be di If I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have be di be dibba 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 be di be di be be what I am. Would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man?